What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to episode four of Twigs and Twine. Today, featuring player agent for Newport Sports, Rand Simon. But before we get into to the interview, let's say hi to the boys real quick. Joy Filano, how are you doing today? Good, thanks. How are you, Matt? Not bad, not bad. Alex Muff, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Let's get in. Let's get into some uh, some news. It's been a pretty slow week in the NHL. But one big piece of news was the fa- was Claude Julien, the head coach of the Montreal Canadiens, along with assistant coach Kirk Muller, being fu- being let go earlier on this week, and uh, assistant coach Dominic Ducharme being uh, announced as the interim head coach for what I'm expecting to be until the end of the season, Al- along with Alexander Burroughs being hired on as the assistant on an, on an interim basis, unless. Uh, Unless the information the, the information that I read was incorrect, let's hear your boys' t- takes on it. I personally, I don't like. I don't really see uh, the logic behind that. Um, I understand sometimes when a team is struggling and they need that quick. Okay, come on, let's uh, let's get her back on uh, track and. Uh, uh, co- firing a coach like that could help, but in this case, I just don't see it. To say the Canadians were struggling this year is kind of uh, an overstatement in my eyes. Like, I think they started the season, what was it, 8-2-2? Two and two? Like, they started well, no? Yeah, they were, top, they were top in the division. Yeah, and um, I think to fire a coach based off of the last five or six games that he may have had is just kind of ridiculous. And, um, yeah, I know I'm not a big fan of it. Yeah, myself included. Um, I didn't really like the uh, how this went down. Uh, just by a lot of the reports I'm seeing, it's all based on player performance out um, from the Montreal Canadiens. We saw, we heard uh, Carey Price saying that he was in his own head, and that game against Winnipeg would just really, really hurt him. And if you take a look at the stats, they're they're second in the NHL in five on five goals for, and you don't get that way by having a lousy coach, you know. And the last few games that they've played, they've taken really really stupid penalties, and they just they've they've been loaded with mistakes from the start of the game to the end of the game, and this one should just not have been pinned on Claude Julien. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with both you guys, but if you look at it like. Julian's been Julian up like he was one of the longest tenured coaches in the league, if I'm not mistaken. Like he was, he's been there for what five years now, since he got fired from Boston. Yeah. More or less, more or less, but whatever. Three, I think it was between three and five <laughs> years. Still one of the longest tenured co- tenured coaches in the league, active up until he, this week. And if you look at it, they were what they're one, they're one, two, and two in their last five games. They're going on a downward spiral. They like. They haven't been playing as well as they have after that first, that first like insane run in the season. When they're, I'm just reading, I'm just reading this like as, as I'm saying it. The month of January, they were five. They were five, one, and two. The month of the month within the month of February, they've dropped off a cliff, going with with only what one, two, three, four win, four wins in the month of February. They're currently playing the Jets right now, and we're, as we're recording this. And they're tied zero zero, so we'll see what that how that how, how that works out. But I don't know. I think that I think that Julian's time was. I'm so, I'm surprised they last this long. If I'm being honest, 
they didn't have the greatest success and they were like this is their this is their window like Carey Price is not getting any younger he's not he's signed to an, a, a, an extremely expensive contract so mm-hmm. this is it's they're in win now they're in the win now mode right like they signed Tyler Toffoli in the offseason they traded for Josh Anderson who's been playing great he's been killing the Leafs every time they play each other like they need to do something if they're like I see this as like a way of uh, in the same light as the Penguins when they fired Michelle Therrien back when when they went on that cup run. And I, honestly, as a Leaf fan, I hope it doesn't replicate. History doesn't repeat itself up in uh, in Montreal. But like if you remember, if you guys remember the uh, the Pens, they fired Michelle Therrien, hired um, Dan Bows. Was it Bowsmer? Yeah, Who was the? Bowsmer. Yeah, Bowsmer. I, I don't know. Why I keep getting Bowsmer and Shiro mixed. I confused. Uh, they hired Dan Bowsma, and then they end up going on that cup run, and then they end up doing the exact same thing when they fired Bowsma and hired Mike Sullivan and went on that um, and like on that cup run, the first of the the two back to backs. So I think they're just trying. Like it's just a shit. It's a kick in the pants for the team, saying like, okay, guys, like I, I got rid of the coach, now you're next. Also, at the same time, like I think Mark Bergevin is just trying to save his own ass. Like he's been. He's been on the hot seat. He he's on the hot seat, and he's been like that for a while now. He needs to do something to get this team up, uh, up and running. And I don't. I think if they continue down, get down this uh, downward trajectory, I say by the end of the season, they uh, they're they're going to be uh, looking for a new general manager. No doubt they're looking for a new general manager, yeah. but um, Bergevin he's been in as the general manager for less than ten years, and he's on his third coach. And I think him firing Claude Julian right now, it only makes his job um, less secure as the year goes on. And we've been looking the, the way Carey Price on. I don't want to pin the whole uh, the whole downfall of the Canadians on Carey Price, but for somebody who's supposed to be a number one goaltender, he's been playing like a number two, and he's getting paid ten and a half million dollars a season. And goaltending that that can't be pinned on Claude Julian. I, overall, I just think it's a, a team. Um, it, it's just one of those things in the NHL where you're going to go through a rough stretch, and this is it for the Canadians. And I think they hit the panic, or Mark Bergevin hit the panic button a little too quickly. Yeah, and you mentioned Carey Price. Um, in 12 games this season, he's got a 3-1-3 GAA with an 8-8-8 save percentage. For a guy getting paid 10.5 for the next, I think, five, six years, that's awful numbers. That's awful numbers yeah. for somebody getting paid $5 million. He's He's still in a, he, he still has that skill. I get, I, I, granted, like like I mentioned, he's not getting any younger, but I don't know. Something's got to change over there. I don't know if it's something just in his head. It's something psychological, like, uh, like you mentioned earlier, but I don't know. Something's got to... Something's got to change that up in uh, La Belle Provence. Yeah, no, like you said, it's definitely a psychological thing at this point because um, with Price, we've seen it for the past few years now. It's either he's hot or he's cold. Um, you can't find a middle. And um, like like you said, uh, three coaches since Bergeron's been in uh, – Bergevin, my bad, been in um, office – and uh, at what point do you stop blaming the coaches and start blaming the GM? And uh, like you said, I think uh, if they don't have it figured out by the end of the season, I think uh, we've seen the last of Bergevin in the head office for Montreal. I don't know. I don't know, honestly. Um, the one th- one thing I do have to say, just on a completely unrelated note, but it's still relating to the Habs, 
Mark Bergevin with that flow that he's been growing this season. My God. Have you seen his fucking arms, though? This guy's jacked. Jesus fuck. Like, this guy's jacked, been, man. This guy's been getting... Dude, he's, really? he's been putting yeah. in the work over, quarant- over the he's COVID quarantine. Huge. Oh, man. He doesn't have his priorities straight here. This guy needs to... He, yeah, man. He's... Uh, he's uh, he's trying he's trying to enjoy you enjoy uh, the time he has in the NHL uh, in the NHL weight rooms with the skill with the skills coach and uh, no the strength the strength and conditioning coach before it's too late. One thing though, like I uh, I don't want to start a rumor right now, but if if I'm if this happens and I'm right, I'm gonna whatever I'm gonna kind of be uh, give myself a little uh, little top on the a uh, little uh, stick top. I wouldn't be surprised if a guy like Jim Rutherford becomes the next GM of the Montreal Canadiens. It was meant. Mm-hmm. It was mentioned today that he, um, or today or yesterday, that um, he still has the um, like the bug. He said he still has the bug. He still wants to be uh, to, to manage a team. I wouldn't he, be surprised if I see him go uh, to Montreal. No, I I just can't. I can't see that at all. I just, just the way how everything played out in uh, in Pittsburgh, it just I don't think the Montreal Canadiens, um, I don't think that would be in their best interest to bring him aboard. Just yeah, gr- yes, but granted, it's also the Montreal Canadiens. Like, do you really think that with some of the moves that they make, that they're thinking in their best interest? Like, I'm not trying to like do. You, I think I honestly think that um, they're gonna go for more like. Uh, like think about it. They, it's a hall of the chance to hire a hall of fame general manager. Like I think they're going to end up going for it. Like it's an old, the NHL is an old boys club and the same guys all, are always going to end up getting rehired and rehired year after year. Mm-hmm. So like, I do think I, I don't know. It's my personal opinion. I think that we're going to see Jim Rutherford in Montreal. If I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I'm right, let's go. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Moving on from the Canadians, the uh, it was um, said on Saturday, Saturday night headlines today. Elliot Friedman he mentioned that um, the uh, the Anaheim Ducks have been calling the uh, have been calling Jim Benning uh, and the and the Vancouver Canucks regarding uh, Jake Vertanen to see if they can get if they can get a deal going. And the biggest piece involved in that trade, like it's all the rumors going around, has been. Danton Heinen in exchange for, um, in exchange for Vertanen, but at this moment, like they don't, there's no way to make it work. The the the, um, the Canucks are already up against the cap, and like they need to start moving money out, and not moving money in. And Heinen's making two point eight compared to Vertanen's two point five. Granted, it's not that much. It's not that much of a um, of a of an increase, but it, it considering that they're gonna have to pay. Um, Hughes and Pat Hughes and Patterson soon. And did Besser get his extension already? Besser? I don't think so. I'm not hundred. I think he I've, did. I want to say six by seven. Uh, I got it here for you. No, yeah. Uh, he's getting five eight. Five eight per year. Yeah, three years. Three more years, so two more years after this. Yeah. So, okay, I'm on cap. I'm on cap friendly right now for Jake Vertan, and he's got he's got one more year after this. He's in the first year of a two year five point one million dollar contract at two point five five a year. Like I mentioned, his production is his production has not been where 
they expect it to be obviously him being drafted sixth overall in 2014. Like what's he ha- what is he at this season? Just looking at it right now in ni- 19, 19 games, one goal. Nineteen games, one goal. Last year, sixty nine games, forty one points, eighteen goals, eighteen assists. Not bad, but like I don't know. I think I think he doesn't fit. I think personally he doesn't fit the makeup of that team. Whereas a guy like Danton Heinen, where they need like he's he's more of a presence that can go and he granted I granted I haven't I haven't been watching the um the Anaheim Ducks, but I remember him being uh when you and his time with the Bruins, like being a complete pain in the ass, who can go play more on the bottom as a bottom six, who can go play more in the defensive end of the puck. He's a plus grant last two seasons he's been a minus player, but other than that, he's been plus he's been plus his entire career. With Boston, is with Boston, his last two full season, he was plus ten and plus thirteen, and he can. He's a guy who could put up, who could put up some points. He would be a great addition to that to that team, per in my opinion, to uh, Vancouver. But it's only it's a matter of getting the caps to, the cap to work, and I, I don't think they can make that trade unless they end up uh, finding a way to offload a Louis Erickson or a Jay Beagle or an Antoine Roussel with those stupid extensions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. I, honestly, I think the trade, if it does go through, it would be um, beneficial for both teams. Jake Vertanen, uh, like you say, he was drafted in 2014. He's been six, playing in his seventh year with the, uh, with the Canucks. He, he needs a change of scenery. Um, if it has to be Anaheim, you know, that's not every player's most desirable place to play. But if it has to be Anaheim, then so be it. He hasn't lived up to the expectations that everyone set on him when we were watching him in the World Juniors. And um, that, as for Denheim, like you said, he'd fit in with the Vancouver Canucks. He can add some of that uh, depth that they that they truly, truly need. So I, I do see it being beneficial on both sides. You look, you look at a guy like... Uh... Vertanen, and obviously, like how you said in the World Junior, he was unreal. Um, six overall to the Canucks back in uh, 2014. Do you think any of that junior magic could come out and play now? He's only 24, and like you said, a, a change of scenery uh, has helped a lot of players before, but do you see that junior star coming back out and perhaps maybe having a career uh, year on a new team that, if he is traded to Anaheim. Honestly, I I'm just looking at his numbers right now. He had 100 points. Like he his draft his last season was yeah his draft year. He had 100 points in 71 games with the Calgary Hitmen uh, in the WHL. 45 goals, 26 assists. Sorry, my mistake. He was a point point per game. 45 goals, 26 assists for 71 points with 100 with 100 pims plus 23. I don't see him getting to that like finding some of that magic again like i could see i know he has the i could see he has the pieces for it but it's gonna it's gonna be tough for him to find that magic the biggest thing that he has to worry about just judging off just looking at his stats on hockey db is his defensive side of the game he the past like the past four seasons he's been minus four minus four minus 11 yeah in like, his entire pro career he has not he's been only minus the yeah. entire pro career yeah, just the one in 16, 17, in 10 games, he was a plus one. When this year, he's one assist. 19 games played, one goal, 26 pins, negative three. Is yeah. it all like, is it kind of like, do you think it's time for him to maybe 
let go of that playmaker status and kind of just fill in a new role? It's, like, I don't know. Honestly, Adam, like yeah. I think that I I, don't know, I think that he he needs. I think the change of scenery would be the best judge of whether or not he could still fit that playmaker role. Yeah. Honestly, I'm a, I'm gonna agree with Joey here. He has to take a little bit of a uh, different approach to the way he plays the game. Um, I was reading up on his uh, player comparison on draft day. They had him compared to Darcy Tucker. Um, we all know Darcy Tucker, he wasn't exactly your point-per-game uh, guy. You're not going to rely on him to get uh, a, a 20, 30 goals in a season. But I think he has to take a different approach to the game, maybe work on his defensive game and help out a team on the defensive end of the pot. But I think his days of being a playmaker and getting all these points that like he did in the World Juniors, I think those days are over, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's sad to say for a guy that was drafted so high and had so much potential going into his NHL career, but it's the way it is, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I hope that this that they uh, they do find a way to, to move him out of Vancouver into into a better into a better not better city but like a better situation where he has the chance to play top six minutes because I'm not sure if he's been playing top six in Vancouver. Uh, I don't think so. No, he hasn't. When you're putting up one point in 19 games. I don't think I don't, don't understand. I don't I think you're his... gonna be getting top twelve minutes. Yeah, no, no I'm let's see. bottom six. I'm, I'm curious. Sure. I, I'm just check. Give me a second. I'm gonna check what, what his uh, time on ice is. But I look at his 2019-20 stats and 69 games played, 36 points. Don't get me wrong. That's not six overall or fourth overall. What was he? Six oh, overall yeah, material. Six, six, six. And he's he's averaging just over 11 minutes a game. He needs yeah. to find, yeah. He needs to find a space, like a, a team where he can go and play those top six minutes. I, like I look at a team, yeah, like Anaheim. That's the per, that I feel like that would be a good fit for him, so where he has the chance to go and play, top, play more minutes. He's the chance to learn from a great power forward in Ryan Getzlaf. Mm-hmm. I don't. Know, I think if they can, if they can find a way to make that trade go through, I think it would work out well for both teams. I think Heinen, I think Heinen, which uh, we haven't discussed that much. I think him. With the way that he plays, he he would be able to go and insert insert that energy into the bottom of the lineup for um, for Vancouver. Yeah, he most definitely would be beneficial there. All right, moving on from Vancouver, um, the Calgary Flame, the Calgary Flames. They've after making so many um, big big additions over the offseason with uh, getting the likes of basically basically half of the. Uh, uh, Maybe basically half of the top ten players from uh, from Vancouver in got with guys like Markstrom and Tanev and uh, oh my God, who's the other guy? Who are the other ones? Off the top of my head, I don't remember you. They all slipped my memory. It was sorry. It was Tanev. It was uh, Tanev, Markstrom, Lievo, and Domingue. Like okay, obviously, like Lievo and Domingue aren't okay. Just disregard what I said with the top six. Uh, half the top ten best players, but whatever they pick up, they pick up the starting goalie from uh, from Vancouver, who has been playing great the past few years. They pick up a good top four defenseman in Tanev. They go and pick up a good uh, bottom six scoring forward in Josh Levo, and they're currently in fifth place in the North Division, 10-10 and two in twenty two er, in twenty two games. Sorry, yeah, ten ten and two in twenty two games. Like they're if you look if uh, if you look at their um, 
like the sorry, what am I trying to say? Their their goal differential right now is minus is minus seven for a teammate that made that many additions. It looks like they're in a win now mode. They should not be doing as poorly as they are or they as they are. And the rumors that have been going around saying like maybe Jeff Ward to look to get rid of Jeff Ward, the head coach, and go and like try and look for somebody else. Uh, I just want to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Like, do you think that Jeff Jeff Ward should be let go? Honestly, I I don't think so. He was put in in a tough position when Bill Peters uh, that whole yeah the whole, uh, that whole I don't even know what you'd want to call that scandal. I guess went down controversy controversy. Yeah, uh, when that went down, he was put into a tough position, but he was still able to lead the Flames to a half decent season. Um, but I'm just looking over their last ten games. They have they have lost seven of them. Grant, you know, that's uh, that's not a great stat. But in those seven games, they've only scored one goal. Or sorry, no, no, no. Over the span of those seven games, those seven losses, in each of those those losses, they've scored one goal. So, honestly, I think it's a little more like the Montreal situation where it's the Calgary Flames players where they're, they're going to be the difference maker here. You know, we've seen they have the goal-scoring ability with Johnny Goudreau up front with and Monaghan, Lindholm, and all these guys. They have the ability to score goals. They're just not clicking right now. Yeah, when you forgot to mention they also have one of the biggest pricks in the league in Matthew Kachuk. Or in Kachuk. I love Matthew yeah, Kachuk. <laughs> I love how he plays hockey. Ah, I don't know about that guy. I love it. He's an absolute prick. He's an absolute prick. I hate when I hate when I see him play against the, the league against Toronto, but yeah, one of those, he's one of those guys that you hate playing against, but just fucking love having on your team. Honestly, like, it. yeah, like if he was playing for Toronto right now, I would have nothing but nice things to say about him. Yeah, but unfortunately, he's he's Hyman on steroids. <laughs> I don't think I think that's a little bit of a stretch. But Which, by the way, by the way, do you see that you see Hyman's goal today against uh, against Edmonton? Yeah, that was the one goal mm-hmm. I missed. Put it upstairs. That guy works his ass off at, uh, in the cor- everywhere in the corners. Kind of, you see, he was good. He, like he looked like he was about to get like just grabbed and pulled down by Darnell Nurse. I'm surprised Nurse didn't. He's he's been he's been kind of uh, gaining that type of a uh, gameplay style where he's just like more aggressive and just wants to crush everything in his way. Yeah, yeah, he's got the Joey Ferlano games uh, gameplay. Only way to play the game. He's a big boy, you know? buddy. Who do you think, buddy? Who do you think? Hey, who do you think taught you that West Toronto in 2015? <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, more, more goals. You see, uh, McKinnon's talk today. I did oh not know. That I was didn't. an absolute missile. Yeah, wow. Guys, an ab- man's an absolute machine. You know yes. what it was? You know what it was? It was that new Warrior twig. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Is he repping Warrior now? Yeah, today he repped the Warriors yeah. in unreleased LX. The Warriors, are, like I'm telling, like out of every stick I've used, if you want a quick release, like just right away, the Warriors. Yes, yes, yes. Love the Warrior. The yeah, disappointed I mean, Matthew stopped using it. So. Yeah. Well, mind you, he he's played pretty well with that FT4. With CCM, so yeah. I'm not, I'm not really going to complain. About I mean, that. fuck, he gets paid how much to use that stick? Might as well yeah. take a good use. Yeah. Well, well, 
I don't know. I've been st- yeah, like speaking of warrior, I've been starting to use warrior for the past like couple of years now. And honestly, best twigs I've been able to best twigs I've used in my life. Like so yeah. just the just the feel of it. So like I've been using like right now I'm using the um the Warrior Alpha QX Pro Stock from um and just the feel of the feel of it, something like it's unlike what any any twig I've ever used before. And uh, like also, I know no free ads. Like we're not sponsored by Warrior. We'd love to be Warrior. Any yeah. reps from War- any reps from Warrior? If you're listening to this uh, yeah, to this hit episode, hit a, hit us up. Twigs and Twine Media at gmail.com. Hit us up. More than yeah. more than happy to talk some business. Make some, let's talk some business. To make a bit a little bit of uh, content here. I'd be a good time. Yeah. Some free warrior twigs. <laughs> More free warrior twigs. All right. Anyways, I think we, I think it's time we uh, we send you guys off to our interview with NHL player agent Rand Simon. We are proud to welcome on NHLPA certified agent Rand Simon from Newport Sports onto the show today. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks. How are you guys doing? And thanks very much for having me. It's our pleasure having you on. I'm doing great. I'm not doing too bad either. So before we get into your career at, uh, with Newport, we just want to backtrack a little bit. You started out. You started out working as a senior editor for the Hockey News. Can you just take us through like um, your time with the Hockey News and um, any stories you got from uh, that experience? Yeah, sure. I was uh, a student at Carleton University School of Journalism. Had some uh, actually. It turns out some soon-to-be famous uh, classmates, James Duffy at TSN was a classmate of mine, and uh, Jason Kay, who's now the editor of the Hockey News, uh, Ken Warren, who's covered the Senators for the Ottawa Citizen for a long time, probably uh, some other people have gone on to some great things. Uh, actually, Richard Foote's a name who comes to mind, He's written a couple of books, um, some with uh, a bit of a sports focus. So, yeah, we had a pretty good class there at Carleton, and, and uh, in, the, in the graduating year, we had a job board, and uh, notices were going up for various newspapers and we're looking to uh, radio stations looking to hire us. And uh, there was a notice for the hockey news, which was right up my alley, longtime fan, longtime reader of the hockey news. So I applied for the job and uh, only one other person from Carlton applied. And in fact, it was Jason. Um, so prior to the interview, uh, which was with Steve Dryden, who's now with TSN, um, Jason got hired uh, by the Canadian National Exhibition, so he didn't even go to the interview, and it was me, I guess, competing against uh, some students from some other journalism schools. I may have had a bit of an advantage because Steve was a, a, a graduate from Carleton, and I was hired. Uh, summer job turned into a, a full-time job. Uh, Bob McKenzie was my boss. Uh, of course, Bob has gone on to some great things, uh, first with Star, then with uh, TSN, and Still, still there in semi-retirement. So great experience with the Hockey News. And I was there for, uh, for four years, um, made a lot of contacts in the hockey industry, was always interested in becoming an agent. I actually applied to and got into law school while I was at the Hockey News. But I was enjoying my time at the Hockey News so much, I decided not to go to law school. Um, but I was always interested in becoming an agent and got to know Pat Morris and Don Meehan in Newport. And um, they had uh, someone working with them who left go take a position with the Florida Panthers and I ended up replacing him. And that was, uh, well, nearly 28 years ago. Uh, I've been in Newport ever since. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Bob McKenzie. And um, when I was, when I was uh, doing some research on you prepping for this interview, I real I, I realized that your timeline with, uh, at the hockey news with Bob McKenzie, it coincided. So um, you mentioned he was your boss. Do you got any, uh, any Bob father stories you'd like to share? 
accidentally high sticked him once in a in a rec hockey game that no he didn't way. Oh. too well. <laughs> uh, fortunately, pre TV days, because there was a bit of a gash on his nose that wouldn't have looked so good on TV. I'm not sure if the makeup artist would have been able to get rid of it or not. So, so, so that happened. But you know, I, I must say that uh, my time at Carleton was great. Some great professors learned a lot. Worked with some great people. My time at the hockey was just phenomenal. Steve and Bob were just terrific to work for. Um, they were, they, you know, you see Bob on TV and, and, and you realize sort of how good he is, but he's so detailed. Uh, Steve, the same. Um, they, they really taught me more in, in a shorter period of time than what I, what I learned uh, in journalism school. It was a great, great experience. And I've been able to carry forward, I think, a lot of those skills into, into the job that I have now with Newport. Uh, yes, and you're a well-known uh, agent for Newport Sports right now. Can you just bring us through how you got involved with Newport specifically, and also with becoming an agent in general? Uh, we don't. We you mentioned um, you grew uh, a relationship with Don Meehan, and uh, I can. I apologize, I forgot the other name that you said. Um, but yeah, how? Did you, yes, and how did you get involved in the industry originally for with Newport? Yeah. So like I said, when I was at the Hockey News, I made a lot of contacts. You know, I was an editor there. So I worked on a lot of stories and got to know people in the hockey industry. And actually it was Pat, who I really got to know well in, I guess, 90 or 91. That was during the, uh, the hockey card craze. Um, for your time, I guess there's sort of a, another one going on right now. But um, back then uh, there was a big boom in the trading card industry. And Pat and Don and Newport were very involved with that. So I really got to know them well, and um, they basically hired me to um, just look after a bunch of different areas. It wasn't really a specific focus to my job at the time, but when I was hired in Newport, I applied for certification through the NHLPA, became an NHLPA certified agent, and, and have been my, my whole time at, at Newport. I've had various responsibilities there that have changed and grown over time. Obviously, the industry itself has changed a lot over time, and um, yeah, I mean, obviously, if I didn't enjoy it and if I didn't work with Pat and Don, I wouldn't have lasted and stayed as long as I have. And it's been a really, really good, good time and been great experiences. Uh, lots of different experiences, lots of interesting travel, met a lot of interesting people over the years. And um, can't say I'm looking forward to, forward to the next 28 years. I'd like to think I'll be retired long before that, but yeah, it's been a good, uh, good run so far in Newport. Very, very nice. Very nice. Uh, I just kind of want to, through what, what, what's the process to getting certified as an NHL agent? It, do you have to go through a certain program or is it like a, going to a school for a few years or what was the process? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, when I did, it was a long time ago and I honestly don't know if the process is exactly the same now or not. At the time, it was a matter of completing a, an application form and, and going through an interview. Um, they're obviously looking at educational background They're looking at your, your personal background, making sure there's, you know, hopefully no, no big issues in your, in your personal background or professional life. Um, you know, they ask you some, some questions about any financial involvement that you may have had on an ongoing basis. We do have to uh, get recertified every year, uh, just complete a form, a much shorter form, just sort of uh, indicating mm -hmm. if there's been any changes to the original application. So that, that was what I went through. I don't know specifically nowadays if the process is the same. I imagine it's somewhat similar. I get asked a lot, you know, what are the educational requirements to being an, an agent? And certainly when I uh, was certified, there were no specific educational requirements. Um, a lot of Asians have a law background, a lot of business background. I have a journalism degree. 
and, and obtained a certified financial planner designation while I was working in Newport. So I have a bit of a financial background as well, but nothing, nothing specific is required. Um, at least certainly it wasn't then, but I would say that, you know, having the skills that are taught in business school or in law school certainly are applicable to the job. And I would highly recommend anyone who's interested in going into the field to, you know, try and consider going down that path if, if it's possible to do so. Um, so now in personally, I've, I'm going or hoping to go into business school in the next few years and hoping to have a career as an, uh, as an agent in the future. So for myself and as well, for those listening, what are, what are the responsibilities of a player agent? Like, um, are there, are there different tiers? Like, does that, is every agent, um, does every agent hold the same responsibility depending on how many clients they have or how does it work? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So Newport's a full service firm and there are six of us in the office who are NHLPA certified agents. We have other certified agents who, um, who work outside the office in various parts of, but we provide all kinds of different services. We do, of course, contract negotiation, all the hockey related matters. We look after the financial affairs for our clients and we do the marketing for them. So, you know, every agent can have different areas of responsibility and certainly that would be very different from someone working, you know, for themselves, let's say out of a home office. Um, well, I guess we're now all working out of home offices, but you know, uh, a, a person who's, who's really just a one person, uh, one man or one woman shop who has to basically do everything or potentially farm out some of those responsibilities. So, you know, at, at Newport, we all have some different areas of responsibility um, certainly, if you want to become an agent, you'd, you'd have to be very familiar with different tiers and levels of hockey and how drafts work, how collective bargaining agreements work, how contract negotiations work. You wouldn't necessarily have to be an expert in marketing. You certainly could have other people looking after those kinds of things. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great business. Uh, I speak to a lot of people who want to get into this business. Um, it can certainly be very rewarding. Um, but it's not an easy business. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't really maybe necessarily appreciate, you know, if, if you've watched, um, you know, any movies or, you know, Hollywood depictions of, of being an agent, it tends to be, you know, pretty glamorous. And, uh, you know, Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise, that, that being probably the, the, the most cliche one, you know, and he, he went through some difficult times in the movies too, you know, where he's getting fired by, by a longtime clients. And it, but, but more than that, it's a, you know, I don't want to exaggerate things and say I'm getting woken up in the middle of the night all the time, but it's close to a 24-hour day job. You know, you are on call um, in, a, in a typical year uh, when there are OHL games and midget games and Bantam games to go to. We're out at those games. We're in the office early the next morning working all day and then going to games at night, going to OHL games, and then traveling throughout North America seeing, uh, seeing our NHL clients. So, you know, in that respect, this season has been unlike every one of the other 27 seasons that I've been involved with at, at Newport, no games to go to, no traveling. Last time I was at a game was March 7th in New York. I saw the hurricanes and the Islanders and uh, left, left that game and thought I'd be you know, going to some more games very soon and haven't been to one since. So it, it, it's, it, again, it's a rewarding job and I can see why a lot of people would want to get into it, but it's, it's not an easy job. There's a lot of sacrifices. Um, you know, my son's a 2003 born player. And uh, I've seen lots of other 2003-born players play a lot more hockey games than I saw my son play, you know, because I'd be out watching other kids playing while he, while he was playing. 
And, you know, it's, that's fine. It's just, it's, it's part of the job. And it's, you know, one of the, one of the sacrifices that you have to be prepared to, to make. The other thing about getting into the business is the competitive nature of it. When I started, my first uh, NHL draft was 1993. I think there were 26 teams back then and Newport represented 10 players in the first round. My guess is there were probably five or six firms that represented the entirety of the first round. Well, now, uh, soon to be 32 teams, um, 32 players being drafted in the first round, there might be 20, 25 different agencies representing all those players. Um, there's, there's a lot more competition than there was when, when, when I started. And, you know, that's obviously made it, in, in a way, I guess, easier to break into because there are more firms that, that are out there. On the other hand, there's just so much competition now. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a very different environment than what it was when I started back in the uh, 93 draft. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems like it's gotten a lot more, e- like you said, easier to get into, but a lot more competitive when it comes to becoming successful. Like- yeah, and, and, and I wouldn't want to necessarily say it's easier to get into. I mean, there might be more potential opportunities, but there's also more competition because there are more people who want to get into it, right? So back when I was getting into it, certainly from a financial point of view, it wasn't anywhere near as potentially rewarding as it is now. I mean, when I started uh, at Newport, I wasn't going because I thought I was going to make millions of dollars a year, and, and which is good because I don't. <laughs> and, um, you, you know, when I left the hockey news, I, I didn't get a raise to go to Newport. My, after my first year there, during my first year there, um, I guess, yeah, after my first year there, there was a lockout and there was a season that started uh, that was delayed and there was a lot of uncertainty in the business. And, you know, obviously we're going through some difficult times now with everything that's happened with COVID and no fans in the arenas and the cap not going up as much. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy business to get into. And the other thing that I would emphasize too, is that, you know, we're recruiting players at very young ages, you know, generally 15, 16 years old, they become clients. If they turn out, they're getting their first, they're signing their first financial contract at 18, 19, 20, finally starting to get paid. You know, in most cases, maybe playing in the NHL at 20, if they're really good, 21 or 22 on a more normal path. So you think about it, if you're just starting out in the business and you're recruiting young players at 15 and 16 and you're successful and you get real high end 15 and 16 year olds as clients, that's amazing. It's, it's a great accomplishment. They're probably not paying you anything for four or five, six years. So, you know, in order to do this on a full-time basis would be pretty difficult just starting out. There needs to be other sources of income, obviously. And that's never mind the fact that a lot of players who are elite at 15 and 16 don't make it because it's a very, very difficult thing to go from being, you know, among the top, top players in the GTHL, let's say, to becoming uh, an NHL player when you're competing against players from all over the world. Aside from like the um, minor hockey aspect, we want to get into the more of the NHL aspect of uh, of a player agent's uh, role and responsibility. So you mentioned contract negotiations. Can you like take us through maybe some things about the about contract negotiations that like the average fan may not know, like people who don't have uh, insider like don't have connections within the industry, like those the, who don't have insider information wouldn't know like exactly what goes on behind closed doors. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what people know or what they've heard in the past on, you know, maybe through other podcasts or through seeing people interviewed on, on television. But, you know, I can tell you how, how we approach literally every contract negotiation. And, and the first step in that is, um, and it's an ongoing thing that starts from day one, really, is research the player, learn and, and find out, discover everything there is to know about your client. So, you know, for example, a recent negotiation we had was Marcus Foligno. So, 
you know, Marcus Foligno, you look at his box score stats, he's not scoring 30 goals, he's not getting 60 points. There's a ton of stuff there that makes him extremely valuable. Dig into the advanced stats, the defensive metrics, various websites out there that track these things, and he's elite at, at what his role and responsibility is. So you learn everything there is to know about the player, know who he's playing with, who he's playing against, you know, what, what situations is the coach putting him into, how's he producing five-on-five, five, power play shorthanded, everything, break down everything. And then you talk to the player and you go over all that with the player, uh, make sure that everybody's on the same page and fully understanding his role and responsibility, finding out if there's reasons for maybe a decline in performance, let's say from one year to the next, is there something we need to know before we head into the negotiation. The next step then is you, you compare the player to other players throughout the league. So players who are in similar situations, unrestricted free agents, you look at other UFAs, salary Arab guys, guys without salary arbitration rights coming off their entry level, whatever the particular player situation is. So in Marcus's case, he was going to be an unrestricted free agent. So we're looking at similar players, similar statistics, roles, uh, value, um, responsibility, that type of thing. What did they get paid in the past? What did they get paid pre-COVID? What did they get paid in some post-COVID negotiations this past Offseason was generally not great for a lot of unrestricted free agents, so the marketplace may or may not have changed depending on who you talk to. So, you know, you dig into all that, talk about it with the player, formulate a position, know what your know what your position is, know what a reasonable position is to take. Now, this is all assuming the player wants to engage in negotiations. We have some players who say, no, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to talk. I know the team may want to talk, but I want to play this out, become a free agent and hit the open market and see what my value is. But I'm assuming that the player wants to go ahead with it. You know, then you have your discussion with the team. You know, you sort of set out the parameters of, you know, how you see things. They'll set out the parameters for how they see things. They may tell you right off the bat, you know, player is a big part of our future. We want to sign them for seven or eight years. They may tell you we're not sure about the player and we want to sign them for one year. And obviously, you know, every negotiation is different. There's a lot of back and forth. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, and negotiations can, can change as they, as they go on. Um, you know, you can start a negotiation at the start of the season, not get anywhere. Player has a really good year. Now, all of a sudden, the comparables are different. You know, you're comparing them to other players because he's, he's produced at a higher level. So it's a very fluid situation. A lot of communication with the player throughout the, throughout the negotiation. Make sure he understands what's going on. You know, we represented Brendan Dillon uh, and his, his negotiation with Washington. And that was, a, that was a big negotiation for Brendan, you know, at his, his, at his age. He's probably got you know, maybe two two decent contracts left, this being one of them. And one of the first things, and in, in, he was a newer client. He, he hadn't been a client of ours throughout uh, his NHL career. So when I dug into him and looked in, into all of his advanced stats and metrics, I was really surprised. He really shows well as a defensive player. And not, not suggesting I didn't think he was good, but he was really a very, very high-level player. That gave us a lot of confidence in our negotiation with Washington that our position was reasonable and that if they weren't going to meet our position or come very, very close to it, that Brendan was comfortable going to free agency knowing that he had this behind him. He had this great statistical background. Again, you look at the goals and the assists, and there's not necessarily a ton there. But he's a great player in terms of his shutdown role and making other players on the ice better. John Carlson performed a lot better um, once Brendan got there. And these things are really important to emphasize and not only to Washington, but to Brendan himself. So he knew uh, what his value was so that we could formulate a position. And again, gave us confidence that if, if we weren't able to get close to or exactly what we wanted with Washington, that he could go to unrestricted free agency and there would be a good marketplace for him. 
having that judgment is crucial. Uh, having that experience is crucial. We've been through everything. We've been through lockouts. We've now been through a pandemic, of course. But more importantly, you know, my boss, Don Meehan, has been doing this for 40 years. Pat Morris for 35 years. Myself coming up on year 28. So we have a lot of experience. We've dealt with everything. And like I said, every, every negotiation is different. I think a lot of people think, you know, there's some flexibility in negotiations in terms of, you know, giving bonuses to players and that type of thing. A couple CBAs ago, they got rid of bonuses. So it's not like you can have a bonus for scoring 30 goals. Uh, only the entry-level players can have bonuses or much older players are, are allowed to have bonuses. And there's, there is one minor exemption for players who've been injured and who've played long enough. They can have some bonuses as well, as long as they're on a one-year contract. But for the most part, there are no bonuses in terms of performance. So you're negotiating salary, you're negotiating signing bonus, and, um, you know, obviously the term, the length, the length of the contract, that's really what you're negotiating. And in some cases, you're negotiating a no-trade clause. So, you know, that's the other clause that can come into negotiations and be a big part of it. For, for some players, it's crucial. I mean, some players, you know, if they feel like they're giving a hometown discount to a certain team, uh, Tampa probably being the best example of that, they, they don't have any state tax. Uh, obviously, it's a very desirable place to play with the weather and, and, and being an, uh, an outstanding team. So, you know, if a player's going to sign for a little less to, to play there, he wants to know he's not getting traded. So the no-trade clause negotiation can be important or the no-move clause, which prevents a team from sending a player down to the minors. Uh, as I mentioned, we're negotiating salary and signing bonus. Signing bonus can be a very important part of a negotiation. Signing bonus tends to be guaranteed in the event of a lockout. There was a lot of concern a few years ago that the 2021 season could be wiped out by a lockout because the CBA was potentially ending. So we did a lot of our contract negotiations with an eye towards having maybe a lower compensation in 2021, making sure there was signing bonus in 2021. Turned out, good thing that we did it. Obviously, it wasn't a lockout. It was this other thing that happened that nobody could have ever predicted. So a bit of good fortune there. But that's really what goes into the negotiations. Um, one thing that... I'm not sure a lot of fans realize is that most of the GMs don't do the negotiations. There are some exceptions to that. Um, Jeff Gordon in New York with the Rangers pretty much does most of his negotiating. We dealt with him on, on Ryan Strom this summer. Um, Doug Armstrong does, does most of the negotiating in, in St. Louis. Um, and in some cases, the GM might come in at the end, but for the most part, we're dealing with assistant GMs, capologists, people who know the CBA really well, know the marketplace. And they're really doing the same thing on their side that we're doing on our side. They're digging into the player, looking at the comparables, figuring out the value of the player, and then uh, coming to the negotiation. Um, about, there's one person and one negotiation I'd like to look at or like to have your thoughts on specifically. The Steven Stamkos negotiations from Tampa Bay. You mentioned Tampa with no state tax and taking a bit of a hometown discount. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Stamkos is a Newport client. Um, yes, he is. How, yeah. did, um, how much uh, input did you have or how much uh, experience with that negotiation did you have? And if you have any, uh, anything you, you can share from, uh, from those times, like how that worked out compared to like um, somebody who's more of a middle six forward or like a bottom four defenseman comparing to a first line star making a, uh, who's um, looking for con a new contract. Yeah. Well, Don, me and Mark, I were the lead in terms of negotiating that contract, but I was very involved and I, attended all the meetings with Steven and, and his family. And look, it, it wasn't an easy decision. You know, anytime you, you, you can be an unrestricted free agent, you're an elite player. There's a lot of things that go through your mind. And he had opportunities that would have been more lucrative elsewhere. I think that's pretty much public knowledge that he could have gone somewhere else for more money. At the end of the day, um, 
like all players, it's not just about the money. You know, and we, we talk about this with all of our players, whether they're an elite player like Steven or whether they are a, a middle six or, or even a, a borderline player who has an opportunity to maybe choose where he's going to go. Players look at, um, you know, the, the, the financial aspects of in terms of the contract, tax structure, where he's going to play. Um, climate can certainly be a, be a part of it. But the more important things tend to be coach management role. You know, where's the team in its development? You know, if you're, if you're an older player, maybe you've already won and maybe winning isn't, isn't the most important thing to you, then it becomes less of a consideration. But for Steven, you know, he, he looked at the opportunities that were out there. And at the end of the day, he, he made the decision with his family that it made sense for him at that point in his career to stay in Tampa. Now, obviously, they, they ended up winning the Stanley Cup last year. He wasn't able to have as big a role as he would have liked because of the injury. Of course, he scored the goal that you know everyone's going to talk about forever when he, he by, by no right should he have probably been playing. And you know it's going to be one, one for the record books to look back and look at Steven Stamkos' 2020 playoffs and games played in ice time and the fact that he got a goal and that was it. But, you know, he was the captain of that team and a big reason why they had the success that they had. And, you know, for Stephen, I, I know it was a difficult decision. There were times during that negotiation where I was, where I was convinced that he wasn't going to stay. And then there were other times where I thought for sure he was going to stay. And Stephen probably thought the same thing. I'm sure, you know, he went back and forth in his mind, too, about what, about what he was going to do. And I think what fans need to understand is that these are human beings. Like, we look up to them as being something different but they really aren't and, and just a sort of a small story about that not even a specific story but one of, one of the things that really surprised me the most when I started Newport and talking to players was how much they cared about the fans how much they cared about playing in front of a full loud building a supportive building I had no idea that that mattered to players it really matters a lot you know and if you're playing in Tampa you know your building sold out every night they may not have in total as many hockey fans as Toronto or Montreal or somewhere like that, but they certainly, they certainly have rabid fans who are very, very supportive. And that's important to players. So you can see why for, for any player, it's a difficult decision. Sometimes they might have family considerations. You know, do we want to pull our kids out of the school that we're happy with? And it's hard to leave a place. Like. And for Steven, it was hard to leave a place he liked. And I think we can all understand reasons why he stayed. So, yeah, you're just talking a little bit about what players do want in a contract or what they don't want, you know, moving their families from a, a place that they're so familiar with. But I, I do want to ask, what are some things when a player does finally sign their contracts, what are some things that they won't be allowed to do? So I, I know I don't know if you're too familiar with um, some YouTube celebrities, but there's one, this one guy, Jake Paul. Uh, he's gone out publicly saying he wants to – uh, or he'd have a boxing fight with Evander Kane. So I was just kind of kind of wondering, you know, would Evander Kane be allowed to do something like that? Or do teams have the right to kind of put that into a uh, into their contract? Well, unfortunately, I do know who the Paul brothers are. I'd probably be better off not knowing, but um, uh, it's kind of hard to avoid at, at some points. Uh, I, I don't know too much about them. But th there's a standard clause in every single contract that's part of the collective bargaining agreement, you can't actually do any other sport without team permission. So even, even if you think you're doing something very innocuous, 
and, and look, guys do it. Guys will play slow pitch softball in the summer, or whatever the case may be. And that's not going to be an issue, but certainly any contact sport, if, you know, if a player decides in the off season, he wants to play football or rugby or, or something, he needs to get permission from the team. And if they don't, and he doesn't get hurt and nobody finds out, it's, it's no big deal. But obviously, you know, we, we've had instances of players who've been injured in the off season, uh, doing, doing things like, um, you know, water sports or, or, or whatever, you know, where they, they've had injuries and they've reported to camp and they haven't been able to pass their physical and they get suspended for it. So, you know, in, in this case, theoretically, um, you know, if the Sharks were willing to give permission to Evander to, to do this, which I don't think would, then, you know, if, if he got injured, he'd be okay. Otherwise, without permission, if anything were to happen to him and he was, wasn't able to, you know, report um, to camp and pass a physical, uh, then, then yeah, he would be suspended. I gotta, I gotta ask, uh, Evander Kane versus Jake Paul. Who do you think's winning that fight? <laughs> I'll always pick the hockey player. I like the way you think. I like the way you think. Did you watch the um, the Nate Robinson Jake Paul fight? Was it Jake or Logan? Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> no, I no, no, I. No. That was possibly one of the worst fights I've ever seen in my life, and it was terrible. It was. Uh, I felt bad. I felt bad for the guy. He got demolished. Yes. Well, I mean, when, when you're an agent, I think you look at fighting from a very different perspective because no good can come from it, right? Yeah. You know, when I, I'm talking about our players fighting on the ice, and we have clients who, who fight and it's a big part of their jobs, and you, you basically just hold your breath the whole time and hope they're going to be okay or hope that they're on a very, very long contract and if they're not going to be okay because, you know, people get hurt fighting. And, and it's, you know, it's not as big a part of our game as it once was. And, you know, I like the fact, I like, I really like a lot of the things that the OHL has done to, to reduce the amount of fighting at that level. Cause to me, it makes no sense to have teenagers fighting each other, especially when you've got situations where you have 16 year olds potentially fighting 20 year olds. Now, certainly at the NHL level, you know, you can debate whether or not it needs to be a part of the game or not, but it, it it doesn't really need to be a part of the game prior to that for sure. And I, I do give Dave Branch and the OHL a lot of credit for, for, you know, reducing the amount of fighting that goes on. Um, speaking on speaking on fighting, I'm not going to – I don't want to get into this too much. This is a big hockey debate. But um, how did I want to word this? Uh, would you want to see the NHL going within, uh, with an OHL-style uh, ruling when it comes to fighting? I don't know if it's 10 fights and then, and then a suspension. Yeah, so my personal view on fighting is probably different from maybe what my professional view would be on fighting. My personal view on fighting is um, – I'd, I'd be fine with it gone completely. You know, if you fight, you're, you're, you're kicked out of the game, just like you're an NBA player and you fight someone, you get kicked out of the game. And, but professionally, um, the way I look at it is I think it's up to the players to decide, you know, if, if they're, you know, as a group, as, as a union, they're very well represented by the NHLPA. They talk about these things all the time and they're smart, you know, young and, and intelligent uh, people and if they feel like it needs to be a part of the game they know much better than I whether or not that's the case so you know again from a professional point of view I, I'll leave it up to the NHL and the NHLPA personally I don't like fighting um, you know I don't I don't get enjoyment out of watching it I found it you know difficult when I was there with my kids at games to try to explain to them why it was kind of okay be fighting but it's not okay in any other aspect of society for for people to be fighting um, so you know, I just I, I think that the NHL, the NHLPA, they'll they'll do whatever they think is best. And, and again, from my professional view, that's probably the, the right way to look at it. 
Okay, so it's, we got a little bit off track there with uh, the fighting discussion. Let's get back, uh, just to get back into your into the responsibilities of an agent. One big thing would be salary arbitration. Um, at least in my know, like my prior knowledge, I, I I would always I always assume that it would be up to the the agent who would be leading that discussion. Can you um, would you like to sh- can you shed some light on like how, what go- actually goes down in salary arbitration between a player and a team? Yeah, so salary arbitration is generally argued by the NHL Players Association lawyers and uh, lawyers that they hire who are experts in the field and the National Hockey League on the other side and their lawyers who they hire. So in most arbitration cases, it's not the agent speaking for the player and it's not the general manager speaking for the club. In, with, with us at Newport, I actually do argue our salary arbitration cases. A number of years ago, the NHLPA came to me and said, uh, you know, you've got a, you've got a background in journalism for one thing. So why don't you, why don't you work on writing some of the briefs for your players? So I did that. And, and that grew to the point where I, I argue the cases uh, for our clients. So I think it gives us a big advantage over other agencies because, you know, as an, as an example, uh, Ryan Strom, uh, he's been a client of ours since he was a young guy playing in the, playing in the GTHL, playing in the OHL, I've known Ryan for a long time gives me a big advantage, you know, to be able to argue his case as opposed to, you know, a lawyer from the NHLPA who's basically doesn't know Ryan and is being handed a file a few months or a couple of months before the hearing. Yeah. Those guys do a great job. I'm, I'm friends with, with a lot of those lawyers and, and they're excellent at what they do. But I think the fact that we're able to do this for our clients does give us an advantage right from day one. You know, as, as an example, Kevin Fial is a client of ours. He has arbitration rights this year, or Brandon Carlo, who has arbitration rights this year, Sam Reinhart. Um, we, have, we have a number of players, Travis Sanheim, who have arbitration rights this year. I'm tracking them every single day. I mean, I know the ups and downs of their seasons. Obviously, Kella had some different ups and downs with his team being shut down for a while. But, you know, we were able to, um, and Sanheim too, I guess, you know, we're, we're able to track everything that's going on with these guys here. It's all about preparation and salary arbitration. I like to think that we're as well prepared, better prepared than anybody because we have this advantage of doing these cases on behalf of our clients. I'm involved in the negotiations with the team. I have a very reasonable outlook in terms of what's fair for the player. I know who the comparables are. I know what they get paid. I have a pretty good idea of what to expect if we actually go through with arbitration, which, which is a very important point. I mean, the vast, vast majority of players who file for arbitration don't actually go through with the hearing. 95, 98% of the players who file settle, like Strom did last year and like everyone else did last year when we filed on. But you have to be prepared to go and you have to be prepared to argue. And I think the fact that I'm involved in hockey uh, 12 months a year gives me an advantage that I really know the players well. I really know the comparables well. I can tell you who the comparables are for all of our guys and I'm following them as well to know how they're doing so that when I'm in the hearing, if I hear the other side say something, I'll know, or I should know if that's accurate or not. So when it comes time for me to do the rebuttal portion of the arbitration hearing, you know, I'm, I'm very well prepared. But we, we, we definitely get a lot of assistance from the NHLPA. Roland Lee is responsible for that at the NHLPA. He's a brilliant lawyer who, who coordinates the whole thing. He does a lot of the uh, rebuttal arguments for, 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 for players. Um, generally speaking, I do my own, but Roland does a lot of them for other players. And uh, they're, they're a big, big help with us. But that's really my main, probably most important responsibility that I have in Newport is to look after the salary arbitration cases. And it, 
probably the area that I most enjoy. It's a, you know, it's obviously a fascinating area. All right. So we talk about a little bit of the, the salary arbitration. Um, a lot of people don't really know that much or about the salary arbitration, but what do you think are some of the misconceptions surrounding it? A lot of people think, Oh, you know, a player and their team, you know, they're going to, uh, um, to a court to discuss their contract. Do, are there any misconceptions around it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think the, the sort of biggest uh, misconception is that we're allowed to compare the player to any player we want. And that's simply not the case. You know, I'll read some Twitter comments. Um, it's really the only social media that I, that I use much of. And, you know, I'll read some comments after a salary arbitration eligible player has signed a contract. And a lot of the Twitter comments are, wow, what a great deal for the club. You know, I thought he was going to get $5 million a year because so-and-so makes that. Well, that player that they're often referring to signed as an unrestricted free agent. And in salary arbitration, you can only compare players to other players who had salary arbitration rights when they signed their contract. So, you know, a player um, like Kevin Fiala, a great, great player, dynamic player, I, I can't go out and compare him to a player who signed as a UFA who scored 30 goals or whatever. It's just, it's not admissible. So I think that's the first thing is the, the range of comparable players is pretty narrow. I mean, you're, you, you, you're only allowed to use the group twos with salary arbitration rights. So really you're talking about players who sign from age 23 to 26. You've got to find players who have a similar amount of experience and players have a similar amount of offensive production. If you're talking about defensemen, you're looking for players with similar ice time and, and similar roles. It's, it's a limited number of comparable players. So I think it's important for fans to understand that, you know, we're not able to just go into a hearing and say that, well, yeah, my player had a, had a, just as good a year as Artemi Panarin, so give him $11 million. Or, or, or you know, he's, he's much better than John Tavares is now, so he deserves $12 million. Those things are not admissible in salary arbitration. Tavares, Panarin, guys like that, they signed as unrestricted free agents. You can't even mention their names in here. So I think that's probably the, the first thing. Second thing is probably that most people don't know is it's, it's, it's not the team speaking on behalf of the player. In most cases, the general manager and anyone else from the club who attends the hearing, they're silent. It's, it's a lawyer representing the club who has experience in salary arbitration, whose goal is very simple. Keep the salary of the player down as much as he or she possibly can. And in doing so, they'll say some pretty negative things about the player that maybe the general manager himself wouldn't want to say. So, you know, I think some people think that these hearings can be, can be pretty vicious. Um, Usually they're not. Usually what happens is there's some criticism, but mostly what happens is the club will emphasize that the player is comparable to a certain group of players who make a certain amount of money. And our position will be, no, the player is more comparable to these other players who make a certain amount of money. And then it's really just a back and forth comparing the player to whoever the comparables are. I think the other thing that is, is important to understand is, is the nature of the arbitrators. Some arbitrators may very well be big hockey fans, know a lot about hockey. Other arbitrators know nothing about hockey. They're professional arbitrators. They deal in all different industries. They may have an arbitration to deal with a financial services company or an oil and gas company or anything non-sports related. So, you know, it's, it's a little different when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't maybe understand the full nuances of the game to maximize the value for a player. You know, Brandon Carlo is a elite defensive defenseman for the Boston Bruins. Anyone who's a Toronto Maple Leaf fan will, will remember 
games in the playoffs where you know the Leafs have played the Bruins and and Brandon just completely shut them down. It was there was one game I don't remember exactly which game it was at at uh, at, at ACC. Um, may have been Game Six that the Bruins won, and he was the difference that game. And you know he he provided an element that the, the Leafs just didn't have at, at that time. So, but how do you how do you convey that in, in salary arbitration? It's not easy. You know, it's not easy to explain to an arbitrator why someone who provides that kind of value can be as valuable to a team as, as a defenseman who gets 40 points. Um, so, you know, that's, that certainly is one of the challenges of salary arbitration. Certain players are not maybe better suited to go to salary arbitration. And we have to make that judgment and know, are we better off negotiating what we can with the club or do we go the salary arbitration route? And again, it just depends on the player. Now, in the case of Brandon, he's so good. I have no hesitation going to arb with him. He, he has elite defensive statistics. He plays on a, on a great team in a top four role. And he has really literally since he was 19 years old, which very, very few people could say. So it, it, it depends on, on, on the player, whether or not it makes sense to go to go through the process or not. But I think those are some of the things that maybe um, fans wouldn't realize. I'll just briefly describe sort of how it works in, in, in arbitration. Um, some of this might be a little mundane, but just to give you an idea of everything that, that, that's involved, 48 hours before the hearing, we exchange briefs with the other side. And when that happens, we see what their filing number is for a salary and we see what ours is. If the player files for salary arbitration, the club decides if it's a one-year or a two-year contract. In the very rare instance where a club files for arbitration, the player can decide if it's a one-year or a two-year contract. However, if the player is already only one year away from being an unrestricted free agent, the club can't elect a two-year award. So if a player like Sam Reinhardt, if he goes to arbitration this year and files, Buffalo can't elect two years and take him out of his UFA year. He can only get a one-year award. So for 48 hours, we have time to prepare our rebuttal to what the club has submitted. We know who their comparables are. The odds are we knew who they were before anyway. If you're prepared, you can, you can anticipate who the club is going to use. First of all, I've been involved in the negotiations, so I have a pretty good idea. But another potential misconception about what goes on in the hearing is I'm not allowed to say anything in the hearing that was discussed in the negotiation. So to use the example of Sam Reinhardt, if Buffalo offered Sam Reinhardt $5.5 million on a one-year contract, and in salary arbitration, their offer was $4.5 million, I can't go in and say to the arbitrator, Madam Arbitrator, you should know that the Buffalo Sabres have already offered $5.5 million in negotiations. They're trying to trick you here by offering four and a half. I can't say that. We're not allowed to talk about negotiations. We're not allowed to talk about really anything other than statistics and who the comparables are. So, um, you know, we have 48 hours to fully prepare for the hearing. The hearings are all held here in Toronto. Um, it would have been by Zoom this year, so I would have had my first Zoom hearing if Brian Strom hadn't settled. But normally in person, uh, conference room, arbitrator sits at the front of the room. We're lined up on one side, uh, be myself, the player, um, some other people from Newport, NHLPA representatives. The other side would be um, the lawyer advocating for the club, um, often the general manager, maybe the assistant general manager, and some, some members of the uh, National Hockey League as well to observe and make sure that the hearing is conducted properly. There'll be a court reporter um, sitting at the other end. Uh, recording everything so every word is recorded so you have to be careful about what you say and you know one thing that you really have to be careful of in in, in arbitration when you you know when you go to arbitration go in front of an arbitrator is you have to be aware of not saying something that could come back to haunt you later on so you know 
if, if I go into a hearing and say that a player is more valuable than one of the comparables because he's a center and he takes faceoffs, that could be used against me if next time I go into a hearing and I've got a winger as a, as a client and I'm comparing him to a center. So you have to be careful with that. And again, everything is, is recorded. So the hearing itself, uh, each side gets 90 minutes to make its presentation and rebuttal. You can split up the 90 minutes however you want. I typically like to spend about 30 minutes doing my direct case and I go first, uh, then the club goes and then I do my rebuttal. So I'll have about 30 minutes for my direct case and about an hour to do my rebuttal. Uh, the clubs tend to split it more about 50-50 in terms of their time. But I feel that rebutting their case is more important, making sure that I uh, basically knock down their comparables and say why they're not relevant to the case. Every once in a while, you get a bit of a different case where the two sides come with the same comparables. We actually had that in Joel Edmondson in 2019, where the comparables were the same. They just said Joel wasn't as good as the comps, and we were saying Joel was better than the comps. So the, you know that can be a bit of a different hearing, but that's basically what happens. And it used to be that when a hearing was over, uh, sometimes the club would come over and say, you know, that was, that was good. We'd like to talk. Let's see if we can settle this before we get a result from the arbitrator, which comes 48 hours after the hearing. Now you can't do that. So the most recent CBA, which was you know, just signed, uh, once the hearing starts, once uh, the arbitrator says to me, you know, go ahead and start your presentation, that's it. There's no negotiations allowed with the club. Um, the result um, in terms of what the player is going to get paid the following year or two years be whatever the arbitrator decides 48 hours after the hearing so again you know within 48 hours we'll get a decision from the arbitrator we'll get that emailed and then we'll find out you know sort of whether we won or lost and that's another thing i think worth mentioning in terms of misconceptions uh, is sort of figuring out who won and who lost in the hearing um it's not like baseball in in baseball the arbitrator picks either the player's request or the club's offer there's a very clear winner or loser there it's not like that in hockey. The arbitrator does not pick the player's request or the club's offer. The arbitrator picks somewhere in between. And really, the only way you can decide whether or not you've won the hearing is, did you get a result that was better than the last offer the club gave to you in negotiations? So I don't mind telling you, in the case of Joel Edmondson, we got awarded a one-year contract at $3.1 million. That was higher than the last offer St. Louis gave us. So by going through with the hearing, our perspective was we won the hearing. Did we get as much as we wanted to get? No, of course. You know, we always want to get more. But the reality was that given, you know, the alternative was take what St. Louis was offering or go through with the hearing. If we had been awarded two and a half million dollars, that would not have been that would have been less than what St. Louis was offering. But we got to three one, which was a better result for Joel. And um you know, as it turned out, shortly after the hearing, he got traded and Irani ended up getting traded again. And I was playing on a very good four-year contract with Montreal. So everything uh, turned out well with, with, with Joel's case. We know you're a very busy man. So there's just one more thing I'd like to go over with you. Um, some of the common misconceptions, like at least uh, with myself in the, in the past and also with people that I've interacted with when it comes to contract negotiations is signing, um, like saying, comparing somebody one player to another based off of dollar amount when in theory or when when in reality the cap continues to go up year after year aside from this pandemic but that was a this is a once in a generation um occurrence when you guys are when you when you guys are negotiating um contracts with the teams or in arbitration do you look at it from a dollar standpoint or from a percent a cap percentage standpoint yeah that's a that's a really good question 
Uh, it's a bit of both. Um, you know, now we're in a bit of a flat cap environment, but we weren't before. So typically I would use cap hit percentage for sure. You know, if I'm dealing with, so I tend to look at, try to look at more recent contracts because I think more recent contracts are more reflective of the current marketplace. And that is the way salary arbitration works. You, you don't use old contracts in salary arbitration. I mean, this, this year, if we go to arbitration for anybody, we're not going to be using a contract that was signed in this, for the 17-18 season or 18-19 season. It'll all be contracts signed for 1920 and 2021. Unrestricted free agency, you can use a little bit older contracts, but I try to use as, as recent contracts as possible because it's more reflective of the marketplace. What the clubs often do is they use old contracts because they're lower, to your point. You know, they're, they were signed when the cap was lower and they like the, the number uh, of, of that salary. So whenever they bring up a comparable with an old contract, yes, I will always use cap hit percentage. And I will use that as an argument to say, okay, fine. If you think this guy's comparable, that's okay. But it's not $5 million a year. It should be $5.8 million a year because that's what the inflation rate would be. And even, even in, in any negotiation, um, there's, there's really two parts that are crucial. You have to know who the comparables are and you have to know how to value the contract. To your point, you know, if you're dealing with an older contract, you can't just take the contract at face value. You've got to use cap hit percentage, I feel. And the other part of that is how do you deal with a contract if you're negotiating with a club and it's a two-year contract versus someone who signed an eight-year contract? So that can, you know, make, make things very, very different depending on who the players were. So in some cases, players signed long contracts for less value because they like the security. So they took the security, signed for a longer term. They took less than they would have got if they'd gone year to year in your contract. So you have to be aware of that. And that certainly could be a part of the negotiation as well. All right. Well said. And thank you so much for, um, for giving us your insight. It was a pleasure having you on. And we hope you get, uh, everyone listening enjoyed. And um, thank you so much. We hope you have a great day. Take care. Thank you very much for having me, guys. We hope you guys enjoyed the interview. It was a pleasure talk. It was a pleasure talking to Rand. It was a gr- uh, great, uh, great insight into uh, into the career, into the life of a player agent, and uh, it was extremely informative. It was great having him on. Now moving on, um, there's been rumors going around going around the league um, for the past few months now, or for the past few weeks now, that about uh, wanting to move the draft back from this uh, from this year from this offseason i think i think it was Ju- june or july or like late june that they wanted it this year i think it's the same time as usual um there the there's been rumors about moving it back to um next season to next year at the end of the 2021-22 season and then having the 2022 draft a week after that um it came out on headlines today on saturday night headlines Elliot friedman saying how the league is still divided on whether or not to do this. There's certain teams, certain teams are looking to move it while there's certain teams who uh, they're staying firm on the fact that um, on the fact that they shouldn't, that it shouldn't be moved. And before, like before I uh, hear your guys thoughts, you gotta like, come on, you guys gotta agree like that. You, you already know that one, the one team or one of the teams that's uh, are, uh, trying to justify keeping it this season. It's gotta be the Islanders and uncle Lou. It, yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. Sure. All right, so let's hear your guys' thoughts on it. 
So when they say moving the draft back, are they talking about having two drafts in one year? They're talking just, about talking about having two drafts in one week. Two drafts in one week, yeah. So moving moving this draft like this year's draft to next year, get allowing for or hopefully depending on how the pandemic plays out, allowing for. Um, 2021 eligible players to have a, uh, a full a full draft year. Yeah, what I don't I don't know because the NHL has been talking about uh, making their eligible 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 age to play in 19 for years now. They've been talking about giving uh, kids one more year in, in juniors to develop, uh, much like the NBA or NFL. Um, not so much the NFL, more the NBA, but for years NHL has been talking about making. Uh, the draft held back to 19 and in retrospect this would be the perfect year to do so you hold off on this year's draft and you go to next year's draft with this year's draft class to get everybody a full year of playing hockey I think if that's the avenue the NHL wanted to go on even the kids the kids next year didn't be junior because they did start that by not allowing drafted junior kids to play for like farm teams they had to go back to the CHL. So would that be like a smart move maybe, bringing the uh, draft year one year back? Alex? I guess. I I only I only bring up that point because NHL has been talking about it for years at this point. Yeah, but, the, the, and all, but also the NHL has been talking about doing a million different things. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, it's never, it's never been uh, frontline papers because obviously uh, talks have not gone anywhere um, far enough to – uh, really consider that, but if that was uh, something that NHL is planning on doing, would that be a smart move? See, like, now that now that you say it, I'm gonna agree with you on pushing it back. If that's if that's been the case, where they've really been wanting to push back until 19, there wouldn't be any better year to uh, to make that move. Um, but like you said, Matthew, that teams are really split on the decision of uh, pushing the draft back. I think it's going to be hard to, for the league from a league standpoint to, uh, to convince all these teams who are set on having the draft this year um, to have them change their minds. I, at first I really wanted the um, them to have their draft year this year just because you don't, the players won't get the same kind of recognition that they every other draft class does where they get all this time to – or where fans get all this time to look at their team's new picks and what the future of their franchise could look like. Where this year, you know – or sorry, if it was pushed back to next year, um, I think some of that, uh, I guess you could say, kind of tradition would be um, – it'd be cut really, really, really short. Yeah, I agree. And this will, throughout this whole thing, the, ever since I've heard this one, this rumor, the one thing that's been going through my head is like, if they do it like this, hold on a second. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if they were to go ahead with this and push the draft back to next year, would they go about like, would they, what would they do? Would they do the, um, the lottery, the, like the lottery at the end of this season, so like the, the first overall pick team, the team with the first overall pick knows who like what's going on. Like if they have the pick a year in advance, because mm. that would bring up and that would be a huge storyline for next season. 
So like, say for example, the senators get the first overall pick. The thing about it, you're going into a trade deadline with the first overall pick. Yeah. It would have to, I don't know. It's a tricky situation for sure. Yeah. Because if you think about it, then you have like, say you have a team like, even like, you have a team like, um, like the rain, like the Rangers, for example, they got the first overall pick last year in that lottery, in that lottery system after granted is like obviously different circumstances, but you have a team like the Rangers who are, they're not a bottom feeder team. They got lucky. They got lucky with the lottery. They won the first overall pick and imagine they go out and like, and they end up like um, having success midway through the year leading up to the trade deadline. And then like they have that first overall pick as a huge bargaining chip to go out and pick up a top tier, uh, to go pick up a top tier um, uh, deadline, deadline, yeah, deadline acquisition. Yeah. So that that would that would make for a great storyline next year, but uh, but also like I'm I'm also thinking on the standpoint of like you're gonna end up crowding the uh, the league with rookies in for to start twenty two twenty three. Yeah. You're yeah. gonna have two years worth of rookies joining in. Like the, this would make for a great Calder race, but like. It would also like it would com- it would completely fuck everything up because like nobody would know like it would nobody would know like what's going on with like pro in terms of prospects like if they pick up a prospect who's NHL ready like it can it, there's so many factors like with con like with signing contracts and free agency like are you gonna sign a guy on a one year deal because uh, like that you that you would normally have signed to a two or a three year deal because you don't know what's gonna happen with the draft like if you're gonna draft somebody and he's find out he's NHL ready at the end of the year uh, at the, at the start of next year. You know, I think, yeah, go. Oh, sorry. I think, like you said, overcrowding the league with rookies. I think it's more, it's more unfair. Like, let's think about the European players for now, or even the American players um, that are draft eligible for this year, but they'd have to get held back a year in order to be drafted. Like, because not for anything, the only hockey that's not being played right now is through the CHL. The OHL, WHL, and maybe the bit of the queue on this plane, but not to. Uh, is the queue on plane right now? The Quebec Major League. I'm not sure. I'm I'm pretty sure the W is playing right now because I know the remember, W has a 24 game season. Yeah, because if you remember, if you remember, um, I think it was Red Deer, the Rebels, <clears throat> where they had um, like they posted a picture to social media of uh, like the living arrangements, how they're having all the players. Yeah, in the oh yeah, in the hotel. Yeah. In the, yeah. yeah. Have they started yet? I am not a hundred percent sure. No, I'm not not sure. I don't, by the way, by the way, this is getting a little bit off topic here. But what the like? Can you just imagine like what these guys are gonna do? Like having having uh, all the whole team, like players, coaching staff, living in the in the arena, twenty four seven. That's yeah. gonna be That's gonna probably be the sickest thing they ever do. That's gonna you be an li- experience. You really live in a hockey rink. Yeah, like oh. it'd be like going back to like. Be going back to the old, like the old, older days, olden days, like not, not olden days. Like, I'm never gonna forget reading. Okay, I say never gonna forget. I don't, I'm not 100 sure if it was Bobby Orr or Gordy Howe's book, like their, their autobiography, where they had to live in for training camp, they had to live in the arena on like little cots. Yeah, I think that was a uh, Gordy Howe in the Detroit Forum. Was it? No, no, I remember reading something like that where they had to live in the. Are you sure it was Gordy Howe and it was it was either Gordy or Bobby Orr? Because I remember like, reading something like that, something to do with like the old world juniors. No, the, it wasn't the juniors. It was an NHL training camp where mm-hmm. they have to go and they have to live in the arena and like there, um, like there was like stories of like having to smash rats, uh, rats that were uh, 
in the middle of the night with sticks. That'd be something for the boys for sure. That'd be something for the boys like, to say like real life whack-a-mole. <laughs> and just some hey, just imagine if these guys if the players get access to the to the Jumbotron, uh access to what what's playing on the Jumbotron in the middle uh all throughout the day. No cat no cameras in the uh no cameras in the arena. Let's just leave should it at that. Creative with the, creative. <laughs> I mean we can get into a lot of shit on what they might do, but I don't know if that'd be allowed. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah no. yeah i for i forget from time to time and uh we i don't think we've ever mentioned it um we uh the twigs and twine podcast is featured on the sports Flume podcasting network and um you could check you could check out uh, the network for those listening at sports fluent.ca and you could check us out sportsfluent.ca slash twigs twine but yeah sorry continuing um i don't know yeah, just continue. I think it's really unfair for the American and uh, European players that have had a full season mm-hmm. and have to be delayed a year only because of COVID. Because not, not even no, not even because of COVID, just because of Canada. <laughs> Canada, yeah, literally. I'm not even just because of Canada, because of Ontario. <laughs> that, yeah. um, the, well, the point I want to make is, like you said, um, when you overfill your system with rookies. Can you imagine what the training camp is going to be like with all you're going to have so many rookies out on the ice. They're trying to make a name for themselves, you know, trying to crack the NHL roster. But, it, you know, when you're trying to when you're trying to sift through all those players, you're going to be cutting some players that have a lot that have a lot of potential. Yeah. You know, and you're not going to you're not going to see how how good everybody's playing because you know, your team still has superstars on it. Say they have five, six players that are a part of your team's future. And as a result, you're going to have to be cutting five or six other rookies that could, that could quite possibly make the NHL if it was a normal year. So I, over, I I don't agree with pushing it back. It just really, um, it just really shits on the parade for a lot of the rookies they're eligible for 2022. Yeah. Or sorry, I, the 2021. Sorry. Yeah. I, honestly, I agree with you. Like, and that, like, that's why I'm like, and that's why I'm going to leave my, my ruling, as, like my personal ruling as they should leave it as is like, yeah. and also like, if you think about it, like also think of it from this way, like you have both drafts back to back, like it'll in the same, in the same year, like that ro- that rookie camp is going to end up being like 120 people. Like you're not exactly. going to be able you're not going to be able to get a proper um proper ju- justification like I don't think you fit all those guys not for anything it, it's a bit of a, a, on the money side too you got to think about how they're going to market and afford a draft like that cuz not not next year but the year after we have a pretty big name coming up and um projected for sure Joey Orlando or no no, yeah, I heard he's oh. going in the late third. But um, oh, sorry, sorry, my bad. Continue. <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty big name that's coming up. Projected first overall pick, uh, twenty twenty-two. Shane Wright. Um, you you can't really just. I feel like it's like having a double year. I'm not calling Shane Wright McDavid by any means, but like it's I like mean, having I mean, a double. Grant, granted, exceptional status. Um, not. I'm not trying to say. Yeah, I'm not saying that either, but. He's a great hockey player, and he did have a better uh, 15-year-old rookie season than McDavid. 
He's a good he's a good fucking player, but how do you like I kind of feel like if you have two years in that draft, you have the first draft, and the week later you have the Shane Wright draft. It's kind of like it takes away from it all, you know. Exactly. Those guys that were drafted at the beginning of the week completely just nobody remembers them because Shane Wright's going um, Shane Wright's going the, first the later sure. weeks. You know? If he keeps up, if he keeps up what he's been doing so far, without a doubt, he's going I think there's a good chance, but yeah. And that, he, that's another he, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, but is he playing in Europe right now? Like, what's he doing? Shane Wright? No, I, I think he. I think he's uh, sticking it out in Ontario. Uh, right, Brendan, I think it was, it was Brendan Othman. Othman, yeah, he's yeah. He he went over to play a, a Division Two in Switzerland, playing with the uh, mine and Alexander Muff's good buddy uh, Tyler Higgins. Damn, Tyler, if you do hear this, we miss you, buddy. We miss you, buddy. But, oh, yeah, he's God. playing in the same league there in Switzerland. He's doing really well. But, yeah, no, I feel like it's such a shame because a kid like a kid, yeah, a kid like Shane Wright, after such a, fit, a phenomenal 15-year-old season, he has to be shut out this year due to COVID. And uh, it would have really been fun to see what he could do in a 60-game season this year. I don't know. It um, that's one thing, like. I'm, I'm honestly really surprised that he's sticking it out in Ontario. Like, I would have expected a guy like him to go and pull, and do the Austin Matthews route and go and play in, like, Switzerland yeah, or play in Russia or what have you. But but also, if you think about it, it's not it's not his draft year yet. So maybe he's just trying to get some more some more time in Kingston and get – because he's – I don't get, know. I uh, feel like he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's probably he's in the way room. We can see him in the OHL coming back at like two twenty five or something. I mean, he, he entered the OHL as a fifteen year old, but physically he's been he's been he, yeah, he's up. massive for he's a big boy. Year. He's what six six one six two two something. I think he's six two, but I, I I could see him just spending a lot of time in the gym and coming back and being an absolute force. Not that he wasn't prior to. But you know, coming back at six two or whatever, and two two twenty or whatever or something like that, highly unlikely. Don't get me wrong, but uh, could quite possibly be. Yeah, big centerman score. Uh, he's gonna be he's gonna be fun to watch. It's gonna be fun yeah, to watch. It sucks. It sucks seeing guys younger than you achieve so much more. <laughs> Honestly, don't get me started. <laughs> that hit deep down. I, felt I, I think I think we've come to the age where guys younger than us are way better than us and doing a lot more. Buddy, I, buddy, I've been at that age. Yourself. I've been at that age since I was nine. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I can dust up Shane right in the game of Shinny. Yeah, well, Shane, if you ever hear this, you know where to find mom. Yeah, sh- Shinny, no, no cameras, no refs, no, no helmets, no, uh, no gear, just no, just no skate. Just stick oh, skates, fucking a uh, couple, a uh, couple of rolls of tape around the wrist. I, hey man, sounds good to me. <laughs> My God, this episode's been nothing but nothing but us just getting off track. <laughs> <laughs> There's not right. a lot going on in the NHL. This week. All right, yeah. on to Jeff Skinner. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so on to Jeff Skinner. Um, he's on. The, I want to say the second year of a nine point five million dollar yep. contract. Yep. For another, I think he's got six years left on it after mm. the or yeah after this. He's been scratched for the third game straight. He's been doing absolutely terrible this season with uh, – if I can just pull it up real quick. Buffalo. He's got – in 14 games, no goals, one assist, minus three. And I think including tonight, that's 15 games. Oh, did they play tonight? Yeah, he played, but only because they had so many injuries. So they had no choice. Shit. That's, that's brutal. That's brutal. 
No other real way to put it. Honestly, like such a great talent, and he hasn't been able to do anything. He had a career. Yeah, no, he's hey guys, he's minus four. He's minus four right now. That's pretty good for Buffalo. He got the dot. He got dash one tonight. Oh, Jesus. Bottom line, what what do we all think his future is like here? Buffalo or non-existent. Non-existent. I don't think I don't think he has too much time left in Buffalo. I think they're gonna look for a trade. I think even if they wanted to stick out with them, it's clearly not working there. He had a good year in Buffalo back in 2018-19. And I think was it a career year? Uh yeah, his first yeah. year in Buffalo career year, 63 points with 40 goals, 23 assists. Yeah. He had a great year, and um, even last year, 23 and 60 or 59, not the greatest year, but. Um, what do you mean 20? 20, 20, sorry, what do you mean 23 and 59 last year? Last year, 2019-20. Yeah, so, no, sorry, yeah, never mind. I was reading that wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 20, sorry, yeah, 23 points, 14 goals, my mistake. But I don't, I think right now it's kind of just, this is, I don't know, I think it's more of a mental thing at this point. Doing 15 games. One assist, one point on the season. Being scratched for, prior to tonight, past three games. Um, yeah, I think I think Buffalo. Uh, I don't think he has too much time left in Buffalo. I know personally, I think that if they, I, I, I like, I would like to agree with you, but that contract is not. You can't move it unless Buffalo is willing to retain like the full fifty percent on it. Yeah, I think because I think a Jeff Skinner at four and a half million. Is a lot more enticing than Jeff Skinner at nine million at t- until the end of twenty six twenty seven. Yeah, that nine million. When did he sign that deal? Last year. He signed that deal like his uh, at the end of the eighteen nineteen season. Or, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so after, he has not been showing that deal at all. See, no, Matty, I, I don't agree with you. I don't see a way that any any GM in their right mind is gonna is gonna trade for him. It had to be a retained salary, huh? Like how Matt said, it have to be. It would have to be a retained salary. It have to be retained, and I think uh, Penguins fans are lucky that Jim Rutherford's no longer there. But um, <laughs> you know, I there's just no way that he he gets moved. He he said earlier, I mean, today or yesterday, he said, "I don't think you learn anything by not playing." But I think he needs a little bit. I think he needs his head shaking a little bit here. You know, uh, fifteen in fifteen games. You sorry, you said one point in fifteen games. One assist. One assist in fifteen games. That's just not going to cut it when you're getting paid nine million dollars and to play in the best league in the world. Yeah, exactly. Like I, uh, it's, it's sad to say it because he he was such a great player in Carolina. Yeah. I don't know, Joey. Sorry, were you saying something? No, I'm just kind of like. Like how you said, he's such a great player, and having him with 15 games, one assist, kind of like what's happening. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. Anyways, moving on to uh, our final topic of the night. Unless uh, knowing, knowing our luck, something's gonna pop up just before we finish recording. Um, Rod Brendamore, his contract's up at the end of the, at the end of the year with the Hurricanes, and he's been subject to some rumors going on about. Uh, going with Seattle and reuniting with Ron Francis uh, with the new expansion team, the, the soon-to-be 32nd team in the league. I, I don't know. Like, do, you, do you think that he would leave for a team like, like Seattle? No, I, I can't see it. Only because he played with the Hurricanes when he won his Stanley Cup. 
And now if you look at it, they're fifth overall in the league. You know, they're 13, six and one. And he's, he's built up this Hurricanes team to be contenders in the NHL. And I truly, truly don't think he's going to want to start from square one with an um, expansion team in Seattle. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to side with Muff on this one for once. Like how he said, he, he won a Stanley Cup in uh, Carolina. And after coming so close a couple times with Carolina, um, I, I don't see him just dropping everything right now and moving on to Seattle. I think his heart's in Carolina. I think he wants to bring another championship to the Hurricanes. And, yeah, I see him staying put. Yeah. Uh, and I, I get that too. And I get the legacy aspect of it. And um, we discussed this with, um, with Rand Simon to, uh, on the, uh, earlier this week on our, like on our interview. But if you look at it, like uh, who, what's the owner's name, Tom Dundon, like he's too more, he's too much of a hand. I, I feel like he's too much of a hands-on owner and it, he's been known. He's known to not pay market value for, his coaching staff. Like he's known to try and pinch pennies whenever he can. And I don't know. I, I have a feeling that it would get to a point where that, where he just can't, like he knows that he's getting taken advantage of from, from a money standpoint. Granted, he, granted he did make his money. He did make a a good chunk of change playing, uh, playing for as long as he played, but I don't know. And I think, I, I do think from a coach's standpoint, the chance to go and have, Build a team from scratch. Build a team the way you want it to. You want it to be built to mimic your like the play style that you want to pass on to your players. I think that's a that's an opportunity that is hard to pass up. But personally, like if I had to make my coaching pick for uh, for Seattle, I'd have to say Gerard Gallant. Mm-hmm. I'd have yeah. to say Gerard Gallant's going to be back in a, uh, with an expansion team to start next season. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, just touching back on Brendan Moore again, as enticing as um, as having your own, building your own team and how you want it to be um, run, it is enticing, but you just can't walk away from a championship contending team. Um, you touching on who you think Seattle's head coach would be. I, I do think, um, as much as I do agree with uh, Galam being the number one pick, I do think um, it's going to be uh, Bruce Boudreaux coming really? in to really? be the head coach. I do think it, 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 it could be quite the long shot. I just think he does still have some time left um, as a head coach. Don't get me wrong, uh, Galam is a great coach, and what he did with uh, – with Vegas in his time was, was pretty fantastic in their first year, bringing them to the cup finals. But I, I just see Boudreaux being a dark horse in this one and taking the head coaching job. I, I, I do agree with you in saying that, um, that Boudreaux still has a future as a coach, as a, as a head coach. But um, I think that, after that, after what Vegas did in their first season, what Gallant was able to do, and how Gallant was able to inspire that that Vegas team, I think that he would be the per like they would look at that like um, I'm not 100 sure who is it Todd Lightwicky the uh, the owner of uh, Seattle. Oh, uh, I want to say Todd Lightwicky, Tim Lightwicky, the MLSE uh, CEO's brother. It is Jerry Bro- Bruckheimer. Ah. I think I butchered that a little bit. Uh, Bruckheimer yeah, sounds about Kraken, right. Kraken Olener, Jerry Bruckheimer. 
Okay, sorry. You said Kraken? Is that what I said? I think you just said Kraken. <laughs> yeah, I heard Kraken too. That's the team <laughs> name. No, isn't that what I... It's the Seattle Kraken. Kraken. No, it's not. I've heard. Have you been telling me you've been calling it the Seattle Kraken? Yeah, <laughs> I've heard everybody say Kraken. I think Oof. you're on math. <laughs> but I'm gonna take a look at this after we're finished. But back to your point. Continue. Um, I think that got like that the owners and Ron Francis will take a look at his track re- at Gallant's track record and um. And see like what he did with Vegas, and I think he, he's going to be the. I think as of right now, he's the head, the runner. Like the he's it's his job to lose, to put yeah. to, uh, for lack Most of a better term. Yeah, he's the uh, the front runner for this position. I, th- I I have a feeling that if he wants this posi- uh, this job, it's his. And I feel like he's gonna if he's offered it, which I I, I would be surprised if he's not. He's gonna take it. Joey, any thoughts? Oh, I think you guys uh, pretty much covered it for me. All right. Is there anything else you guys you guys would like to go over, or I think we're good here? I think we can we can talk about McKinnon's uh, <laughs> shot again. That was the <laughs> talk about the sick he's using. Warrior, if you're out there, no free ad, no free ads. But uh, Warrior, if you wanna you wanna slip me a quick uh, slip us a quick email. Wanna get get some a deal going here? Not we're we're not opposed. Because uh, nice uh, nice, uh, lo- nice little customers. Nice, <laughs> nice old timey. Old timey goal. That, that, Q, that QR edge you guys have out there, jeez, man. Never Campbell's uh, never felt a pop like that in my life. Campbell's 30, 30 save shutout. That's huge. Yeah, Campbell in his first his first game back from uh, from injury, posting up posting up a shutout in the win, uh, the three nothing win against the uh, four nothing. My four, mistake. Four. My God, my God, I was watching that game. I don't know why I can't remember that. Uh, four nothing win against uh, shutout win against the Oilers. Camp Jack. Uh, Jack, as uh, as a podcast full of Lee fans, it's great. I think I could speak for all of us when I say it's great to have you back. We miss we missed you, and uh, just get back at her. We got a lot more games we need to win. That's true. All right, guys. Anyways, we'd like to thank you guys for uh, for tuning into episode four of Twigs and Twine. We like again, we'd like to thank Grant Simon for coming on the show, and we'll see you guys all next week, Monday at eleven a.m. Have a good week, guys. Take care. Take care.